Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. You're watching AM to DM. It's Friday, but I don't care. Do you? Oh, <laughs> that goddamn jacket. Listen, friends. Okay, I was at a 9.5 in terms of my 10-point bandwidth for this news cycle. I'm yesterday. surprised you weren't past 10. I was, I was pushing on the thin side of evil, trying not to break through, like mm. Toni Morrison says. And listen, I was walking to therapy right when the news about the jacket broke, and I was like, <laughs> walk faster, girl. You'll get there. It's okay. Keep Don't look going. at the phone. Don't You're almost there. Put the You're phone <laughs> away. What were you thinking about the jacket yesterday? Man, listen. A lot of things, all right? <laughs> a $39 jacket from Zara. Uh, it's hard not to believe that that was not a choice to be wearing that jacket, uh, getting on that plane. And and the first place my thought went, it's a kind of a cynical, broken place, okay. <laughs> is with a certain contingent, with a certain group in this country, mm. that jacket, the sales are probably going to go through the roof. Mm. It's just going to be a lot of people buying fall jackets in summer with a certain contingent of people in the country. The other place my mind went was if you owned that jacket already, if you were like looking forward to fall because that's your favorite jacket and you're maybe not so much a supporter of this mm -hmm. administration, you're probably like, son of a, yeah. oh God. On the bright side, I'm sure you can find that jacket on Zara.com for 53% off. Um, I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> I got it. I, thank you. Um, I, I feel like it's just such a choice, right? Like, it's, it's, that's definitely a fall jacket. And like, listen, I grew up in North Texas. South Texas is hot. McAllen, Texas is not, you know, like a place you want to be wearing a jacket in late June. I don't care if it was 77 degrees. 77 degrees with humidity that you kind of have in Texas in late June is a whole different experience. So she made a choice. She also notably made a choice not to wear it when she went in to meet the children. Right. Which felt like, a, okay, so you're trying to, you're, you know the cameras and everyone's watching you get on and off the plane. She was wearing it back to the White House. You're also aware of like what it would mean to wear it inside the buildings. That is what I kind of want an oral history of. That flight as they fly, as they're landing, it's like keeping it on as you're going to get out in 80-degree 80, 80 weather right. in Texas. Absolutely. It it's was just a lot going on. And, you know, I think of clothing as armor, a form of communication, you know. And I don't think I need to look for a hidden message because the message was there. The message was there and it was not hidden. For now, let's leave it with this tweet from Jess Dweck. Guys, stop making fun of Melania's jacket. Those were their wedding vows. <laughs> Okay, it's Friday. It's Friday. It is. We mm. made it, friends. Well, this morning, uh, we wanted to discuss the immigration cases before a courtroom in McAllen, Texas, that really exemplifies where we are right now in this moment with the family separation crisis. Here's a tweet about it from BuzzFeed News. An assistant federal public defender told a judge that her office had been unable to locate through a federal tracking system nearly a quarter of the parents they were trying to reunite with their children. To put it another way, BuzzFeed News reporter John Stanton had this to say. Even if the Trump EO does stop separating families, which is a big if, for hundreds of disparate migrant families, the damage is already done, and it can't be undone. It can't be undone. Well, BuzzFeed News reporter Adolfo Flores joins us now from McAllen, Texas, to discuss what this says about the broader crisis. Adolfo, good morning. Morning. All right, so to start, what's at stake in this particular courtroom? Why is it so important? Well, that hearing uh, was about a woman, her name is Damaris, who was separated from her daughter. Uh, and she's currently being detained in Washington state while her daughter's being detained in San Benito, Texas. So they're about 2,400 miles apart. The judge was uh, considering issuing a ruling, uh, an order that would have made the government uh, or ordered the government to reunite them. But uh, he didn't because it sort of appeared that uh, she, 
the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office wasn't prosecuting people. Uh, but, you know, the it just showed, like, how hard it was to reunite them and how far away they were. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, so and what did the judge say about that ruling? Uh, and, and what does that kind of tell us about the bigger picture? So, yeah, he was considering issuing a ruling, uh, but because it appeared as though the, U- the government had stopped prosecuting parents who were crossing illegally with their kids, he thought it was a moot point and sort of pointless to do that now uh, because it just didn't look like they were going to continue uh, prosecuting parents and subsequently uh, separating families. Okay, so I read a Washington Post story earlier this week where a federal judge said, listen, if you are arrested and they take your wallet away, they give you a receipt, right, for your belongings. And and this judge was like, so people are taking children away and there's no kind of similar receipt or documentation. What do we know about the so-called A numbers that are typically given, you know, to immigrants to track them when they're in federal custody? Yeah, so some of the parents that were uh, discussed in this hearing, uh, because there was these 17 parents that were— uh, also separated from their kids and that they were discussing. And they told, or some of them told an attorney in Texas that they had not been given an A number for their child. Uh, and that's how the government tracks where you are if you're in immigration detention. So the attorney was worried that these parents are going to have a very hard time finding their, you know, their son or their daughter. Uh, that being said, ICE and the Office of Refugee Resettlement has set up a hotline for parents, but there have been a couple, not a couple, numerous complaints about the uh, how effective the, that number is and uh, people having a hard time getting through. And, and Adolfo, I also wanted to ask, you know, we've seen um, newspapers with, I think, irresponsible headlines, like Trump stops family separation, right, or the use of the word reversal. Um, from your perspective, as someone who's speaking to people on the ground and public defenders, are these people more or less optimistic about the situation now that the EO has been signed? Um, well, I mean, everyone's less optimistic because, yes, uh, you know, this, him issuing that order is not going to syst- like systematically separate parents. Uh, but it's been happening even before that. Uh, now what the government's trying to do is hold families in immigration jails indefinitely. Uh, and these are jails just like a federal jail, a prison. Like it's, they're, no, they're no different. Uh, and so that's why people are not so optimistic because the alternative uh, to family separation is keeping a family in uh, detention centers for months or more than a year. Mm. Wow. Adolfo, I'm sorry. I wanted to get back to that hotline you just mentioned, though. How long has that been set up? It's set up by ICE, which seems a little wild to expect these families to call ICE. And what are some of the complaints, the numerous complaints, as you put it, that we've heard so far? Yes, this hotline was set up by uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, uh, DHS, ICE, and the agencies that are dealing with this. Uh, You know, people call and they say that the number actually goes to, in the past, went to an ICE hotline uh, to report uh, crimes, or they say that they couldn't, uh, you know, they couldn't understand the system in terms of where to ask for where the child is. Uh, the agency said they've been working on it and fixing it so it's easier, uh, but it was just a mess. And everyone was calling. Uh, it's not just the parents, attorneys, advocates. Uh, so I think they were a little inundated. A little inundated, to say the least. Well, Adolfo, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you.
Yeah, man, mess. That is the word mm -hmm. of the week. Uh, and listen, children are still in custody without their parents. So let's talk press access at child detention centers. Senior correspondent at Business Insider Pedro da Costa tweeted, elected officials and the press are being denied access to facilities at which children who were ripped away cruelly from their parents are being held. What are they hiding? And here's a statement from BuzzFeed News. We are demanding that U.S. Customs and Border Protection give the press access to its detention facility in McAllen, Texas, so BuzzFeed News and others can report on government conduct there. Denial of access ignores the protections for news gathering established in the First Amendment. Attached to that tweet, an urgent legal correspondence from BuzzFeed's legal team to Scott K. Falk, chief counsel of the CBP. Vice President and Associate General Counsel for BuzzFeed, the woman whose signature is on that correspondence and, frankly, one of the smartest legal minds I've ever gotten to speak to, mm -hmm. Nabia Syed, joins us now. Nabia, good morning. Good morning. How are you? We're doing all right. Thanks for being with us. So what is the background of this request? So. The First Amendment does not say, hey, trust the government. In fact, it says some, the exact opposite. The law around this says that the press and the public have a right to see things for themselves unless there's a compelling reason not to. And given that politicians and other people are getting access to these detention centers that have children in them, we don't see any grounds to deny our access here. We deserve to know what's going on. We deserve to know what's going on. Have we heard back from the CBP? We have, and not in a way that we like, so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. <laughs> not in a way that we like. Interesting. Yeah, and, and Nabia, I mean, listen, we are writers and, and, and First Amendment attorneys in your case, so it's somewhat obvious, but what what is being lost as a result of press not having access at this point? You know, it gives us a totally lopsided picture. We have cameras that are surrounding the president when he is signing an executive order, and we have the first lady wearing a jacket with very large letters that we can all read. Uh, but we don't get to see the other side. We don't get to talk to kids directly. We don't get to see exactly what's going on. We are supposed to just trust what officials are saying. And given that they've created this situation, we don't see a lot of reason to trust them. The only way to get the full picture is to have reporters and politicians and other people in there and then bearing witness to it themselves. Bearing witness to it themselves. Are there any other news organizations that are making similar, similar requests to ours? You know, I don't know of any in particular, but I do know that many places have people on the ground knocking at doors trying to get in, so I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. And uh, is there any precedent here in particular that stands out to you in your mind, uh, past cases under similar circumstances? You know, so the law here is interesting. So the First Amendment has long given us access to things like criminal court proceedings or even in some places immigration detention proceedings. Um, there are some bad cases from the 1970s that say, well, you can't really get access to prisons because they're unsafe places and there's all these kinds of interests we need to take into account. Now, I think those cases are wrongly decided. But even if they're right, I think what's happening now is not exactly a prison when you have kids in tents, which some people are calling just summer camp. Um, this is a different situation, and there has to be some way to balance this long-held access right with the urgency of what's going on. So we're very interested in seeing what the law can do, do for us here. All right. Well, Nabiha, thank you so much for all that you do, and thank, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, guys.
All right, let's leave it with this tweet from Jake Tapper. It's not an accident that the U.S. government is making it so difficult for journalists, lawmakers, lawyers, and others to bring you images and firsthand, firsthand accounts from the separated parents and children. They are hiding the truth from you because they fear your reaction. Joining us now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington who recently visited some of the mothers being held in federal custody. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again. It's nice to have you back on AM to DM. Um, so you were able to visit 174 mothers who were separated from their children at the Federal Detention Center in SeaTac, Washington, after you demanded to see them. Um, how were the women doing? You know, it was heartbreaking. This is a federal prison. I mean, we call it a detention center, but it's actually a prison with uh, all the way from pretrial to maximum security. This is where the 174 women are being held. I'm actually going back on Saturday, tomorrow, to visit with the 32 men that are being held there, uh, who I was not able to see last time. It was heartbreaking. These women, uh, almost half of them had been in detention facilities, four or five, um, for over a month. They had been transferred from the Texas border to the federal prison because our detention centers are full. And they talked about how this was the first place that they felt that they were treated like human beings. And remember, this is a federal prison. So it tells you something about the conditions that they were held in, in ICE and CBP custody. Um, probably about 35 to 40% of them had children. And that was when they broke down and wept. And frankly, there was not a dry eye, uh, dry eye in the house because they talked about, you know, children as young as one year old being separated from them. Not a single one of these mothers had had the chance to say goodbye to their children. They talked about being deceived, they used that word, um, and told, for example, when they were in a room with their children at the very beginning, that they were just going to get a photograph taken or they were going to visit the judge and then they came back and their children were gone. And in some cases, they actually talked about hearing the cries and the screams of their children in the very next room um, and not being able to go to them. Not a single one had been able to talk to their children and only two out of all the mothers there even knew where their children were. So it was heartbreaking. They talked about the conditions of being um, imprisoned really in places that they had nicknames for like the ice box and the dog pound and uh, ice box because it was so frigidly cold and they had no blankets, no mats, dog pound because it was cages like a kennel. Um, and so this was, you know, I think when you hear the stories of the women that are coming across, you really have to challenge the perception that the president would like you to believe, which is that these are gang members, that these are murderers, rapists. Um, he puts these women into the same category as people who are infesting the country. Very dangerous, in my mind, very, very dangerous language. These are women coming from countries where they're escaping persecution, gang violence, all kinds of horrible things. And um, it's, it was, you know, one woman talked about having three children. Her oldest ch child was shot and mur murdered by gangs. Second child shot and paralyzed by gangs. Third child she finally brought here to safety. That was the story over and over again. Over and, and uh, over. I will go back to see them. Over and over again. Wow. Congresswoman, let's talk about action that uh, is being done. You planned a National Families Belong Together march for June 30th pr to protest the no tolerance policy before President Trump's recent executive order. Will his EO shift the focus of your march? 
No, it doesn't shift it at all because we've been calling for a reversal. And I think what the American people have to understand is he did not reverse the uh, he did not reverse his his zero tolerance policy. What he said is we're not going to separate families, but in fact he will have to because the court order says uh, the Flores court order says you can't hold children for longer than 20 days. What he is doing is he's saying we're going to hold families indefinitely. In other words, create a family prison camp indefinitely, and then he's going to he's already petitioned the court to say we should be able to hold these children for longer. I don't think the court is going to change their mind. So either in 20 days they're going to have to separate families again, or they're going to have to, or they're going to be holding families, including children, in camps for an indefinite amount of time. And I have to tell you another thing. The over 2,000 kids that have already been separated, the administration has no plan to reunite them with their families. And that is terrible. The women that I spoke to had pieces of paper that said, this is my name, this is my children's name. But one woman said to me, these are not my children. So literally, we don't think that, these, uh, that the administration has any idea who belongs to whom and how we reunite these families together. All so right, the so march is on. We have over 300,000 people signed up to participate in over 280 rallies across the country, and people can go to familiesbelongtogether.org to find out more. All right, so Congresswoman, the administration uh, may not be able to reunite these families, but is there anything Congress can do? Well, we have the Keep Families Together Act that was introduced by Representative Jerry Nadler onto the House floor, and I spoke yesterday on the rule when uh, Ryan's terrible immigration bill was on the floor, which they had to pull. They don't have the votes. They're going to try to get the votes, I guess, for next week. But um, that is not a compromise bill. I said on the floor yesterday that the only bill that we should be sending to the president at this point is the Keep Families Together Act, which would end the abuse and the separation of families on the border and that's what we are focused on but let me just go back to the point that needs to be made which is there doesn't need to be legislation there doesn't need to be an executive order the president created this crisis with the zero tolerance policy that he implemented he could just pick up the phone or he could go to Twitter and tell Jeff Sessions to end this policy that's what needs to happen right now he would love for the focus to be on Congress needing to do something we will continue to do that and I hope my Republican colleagues will respond to Republicans and Democrats across the country who are saying this is not about policy. This is about right and wrong and we need to make sure that we are addressing this by him reversing this policy right away and reuniting these families. As soon as possible. Well, listen, Congresswoman, in 2014 you participated in a hunger strike to protest President Obama's immigration policies. Do you hold him at all responsible for what's happening now at the border? Those are two totally different things, and I have no problem telling people about how I have been fighting for a just immigration system for almost 15 years. I know a lot about this topic, and every president has, frankly, contributed to um, setting some groundwork for how we think about immigrants in this country instead of passing immigration reform. Now, every president has tried to pass immigration reform, Republicans and Democrats, and we got close in 2013. But 
what the Obama administration did or what the Bush administration or the Reagan administration did is completely different from what the Trump administration is doing. And I say that as somebody who did call out President Obama. I'm happy to call out Democrats who are contributing to this problem, and I have in the past and I will continue to do that. That said, I want to be very, very clear that every advocate for immigration uh, issues and, and for families and for children is, is clearly pointing out that this is of a massive, horrendous scale with an impact on children that no other president has ever ever ventured into. And to that point, Congresswoman, I, I'm just wondering if it's, if there's a scenario in which a bill is put forward by uh, the GOP that says, you know, they would end, the Trump administration would end overnight the uh, zero tolerance policy if Democrats agreed to building a wall. Uh, how would you vote in, the, in that kind of scenario? Well, I have to tell you how offensive I find that proposal, which is actually what Donald Trump has said, is essentially, you know, hey, I'm going to imprison children for the rest of, for as long as it takes for me to get a wall. Now, first of all, Donald Trump could have had his wall six months ago. Chuck Schumer offered it to him. Some of us didn't agree with that, but actually Chuck Schumer did offer it to him at that time as a compromise for a, a pathway to citizenship for 1.8 million dreamers. Another crisis that the president created on his own um, and then sent over to Congress to solve. But the point here is, if he were to say that and if Republicans were to say that, I think you would see outrage from across the country because he, what he's doing, and he said he wants to do this, is leverage the future of children, children who are being put into cages on the border. That is why you see this public outcry because that's just intolerable. You know, he's got their bills, and frankly, he could have had his wall a long time ago. I can tell you, I don't think this is about a wall. I think this is about Donald Trump believing that he can continue to throw red meat to his base by throwing immigrants under the bus, by creating fear in people that somehow immigrants are the cause of all the problems in this country. And as one of only a dozen members of Congress who were born outside of the United States, I came to this country when I was 16 years old by myself as an immigrant. And the women that are crossing this border and the people that have come to the United States, including the president's ancestors and his wife, all have something to contribute to this country. And the suggestion that somehow this should just be a political issue in order to win elections is offensive and frankly it's dangerous. It's creating a set of conditions that people are comparing to other outrages in the past around the world and here in the United States, and I think every American should be concerned about that. And that's where we'll have to leave it for now. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right, friends, up next we go live from the district with Tarini Party. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Happy Friday, guys. We made it, Tarini. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
by the skin of our teeth. All right, here's a tweet from the president. Republicans should stop wasting their time on immigration until after we elect more senators and congressmen women in November. Dems are just playing games, have no intentions of doing anything to solve this decades-old problem. We can pass great legislation after the red wave. Roll Tide. Uh, Tarini, what is Trump signaling with this tweet? It surprised me this morning. Right. So it seems like the president is signaling he doesn't want another failed vote in the House on immigration. Uh, and he's trying to shift the blame preemptively on Democrats here when, when really it's Republicans who can't agree on what they want in an immigration bill and what should pass. So he's trying to put the blame on Democrats. He knows it's an election year. And so it could cost Republicans if uh, people feel like they didn't do enough on this issue. I got to ask, Trini, is Trump weighing in on any of these bills actually mattering, or is this kind of the way these bills were going to play out anyways? Right. So from what we've heard already so far from uh, House Republicans, the president's tweet basically kills any hope that they had of passing some sort of compromise immigration bill. And when I say compromise, I mean between conservatives and moderates within the Republican Party. It's not some sort of bipartisan bill. Uh, but uh, yeah, so what we've heard is it basically kills any chances. What they were looking from, um, what they were looking for the president to do is to basically say that he is okay with the passing pathway to citizenship for DREAMers that this bill lays out. Conservatives call that amnesty, and what Republicans wanted from, from the president is to say that he doesn't view, its am, uh, view, view it as amnesty and that he would be okay with such a bill. That's not what they got this morning. That's not what they got this morning. Okay, um, Tarini, because a lot of Repo Republicans, there was a bipartisan sense of outrage about families being separated, expressed their frustration as well. This now means these families are going to be in limbo at least for another week. Have any notable Republican congressmen, you know, spoke um, about their frustration about where they're now, uh, the situation we're now put in? There are Republicans who've been speaking out, but it's they don't know exactly what to do. And this bill seems to be, you know, one hope that they had. They were still trying to find votes for it, though, uh, last night. And when they couldn't, they pushed it back to next week. I think in the next few days, we'll see how many Republicans actually step up and uh, figure out, you know, how they can get something through. Because, of course, uh, the separation issue um, is something that's on a lot of people's minds. But also the, the fact that nothing has been done about dreamers is still something that, um, you know, has not been resolved. Has not been resolved. Trini, I got to ask, uh, any, any real poll numbers, any, any, any facts behind his call for a red wave that's coming, or is that just counter-messaging? Yeah, there's there's no facts uh, um, associated with that part of his tweet, which is not surprising. I mean, the president wants to put out uh, on um, you know in his tweets what he thinks will will rally his supporters, uh, will get his point across. It doesn't matter if those uh, tweets are rooted in fact, which as we've seen often is not the case. But you know, he's been talking about the red wave um, this past week. I'm not sure where he's how that started or where he's getting that from, but I feel like we'll be hearing more about that uh, in the next few months. Can't wait. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Julia Carey Wong. Hi, I'm watching CNN, and there are three professional journalists trying to analyze the message of Melania's jacket. And can someone just please tell me that we're all already dead? We're dead, Julia. <laughs> Tarini, we're three <laughs> professional people. So let's talk about the jacket. Is there any significance to be gleaned from Melania's outerwear choice? 
Yeah, so I've thought about this jacket more than anyone should care to admit. But, uh, you know, the things that I've thought about uh, among them. So uh, Melania Trump is a former model. You know, she doesn't just grab a jacket or any piece of her outfit from what we've seen. She makes a statement with her outfits. And the fact that she was wearing this jacket in 80 degree weather and just, you know, happened to grab it uh, on her way out doesn't really fit with what we know about the first lady. So, you know, there, her, her office has said that there wasn't a hidden message in her jacket. And I'm not sure what she was trying to convey with the jacket or the message. But, you know, this argument that it was, you know, unintentional doesn't really make sense. Doesn't really make sense. Well, while she was in Texas, what did she do? Did she accomplish anything? I know there have been reports that she has been working to kind of persuade the president. Right. So while she was in Texas, she visited a, a facility that houses about 60 migrant children, six of whom had been separated from their parents. She actually questioned officials there about the, their treatment, about whether they could talk to their parents. She really did, I think, question them more so than a lot of people were expecting. Um, she also met with and you know shook hands with, took uh, pictures with uh, Border Patrol agents, with uh, local law enforcement officials. Now, this is something that, you know, I, one would have expected um, the president to do, perhaps, but uh, she saw herself fitting into this role because she, behind the scenes, has been pushing the administration on this issue. So it was very interesting to watch how that uh, played out yesterday. Absolutely. Well, Tarini, you published this piece last night. Melania Trump, like her husband, is acting alone more often. So how do we know? How do we read this? Right. So in the past few months, we've seen certain things that Melania Trump has done uh, that really break from precedent in terms of how first ladies usually operate and also breaking from her own husband's, husband's administration. So when she went out of the public eye for almost a month, that was something we have not seen a first lady do in modern history. Um, we also saw this week that uh, she cautiously went against what um, her husband's administration was doing in terms of this separation issue. She put out a statement on Sunday night. Other first ladies then followed uh, during the week. We saw her go to Texas yesterday, and we know that she's been pushing the president on um, the executive order that he signed. So it's clear that she's trying to distance herself from this policy. And, you know, in terms of her acting more independently and acting more on her political instincts rather than, you know, what the administration is doing or what other White House staffers are telling her to do, just sounded to me like a lot like Donald Trump. All right. Well, Tarini, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. We have a tweet here from Rachel Hey Girlfield. The red wave Trump is talking about sounds like communism, which, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Up next, we have a very special pride edition of Fire Tweets. That's right. If you're watching the show, you're queer now. I don't make the rules. You make. You, I don't make the rules. He literally makes the rules. I do. Well, literally makes the rules. <laughs> We're here. We're queer. We're fed up. Get used to it. I'm tired. We're on fire. Everything's burning. 
Happy Pride. Wow. Was that what you thought I was going to say? I will say that I feel like it could work in a march. I feel like you had enough rhymes in there. Off. I mean, you know, listen, the first Pride March was a riot, baby. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that. I hope everyone has a wonderful, you know, Pride Month and Pride Weekend and everything, but also, like, find a way to, you know, do some reading, get some history, go to a protest. Can I try? No. Whose tweets are tweets? Whose tweets are tweets? Whose tweets are tweets? Oh, God, and you've had an entire month. Hi, it's your straight ally. Whose tweets are tweets? Did I mess everything up yet? All right, it's fine. Hit that button. All right, let's get into it. (laughs) Justin, hi. Justin, hi. You said, seven-year-old, is lesbian the same as librarian? Me. Draws Venn diagram. Mm. Shout out to the lesbian librarians. Shout out. Love you. Read them or they'll read you. There it is. That's the truth. Shout out to y'all. All All right, this comes from the wonderful Rahul Kartari. Love you. Okay. I'm at a pride mixer and I just passed seven white gays named Kevin in a circle talking to each other. I'm not even kidding. (laughs) I know Rahul and I know that does happen. In fact, I think I know at least two of those Kevins that he's. I was about. I saw. When I saw this tweet, I was like, I think. That's a real, t- mm. so, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, is this a little bit of a tweet fiction? Yeah. Or, I really think this is yeah. nonfiction. That's, oh, that's nonfiction. I'm throwing a little pride party tonight. None of y'all invited. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, something I think about when you're inviting people to pride in a celebration, what kind of space are you bringing them into, right? Are you recreating, like, the dynamic that we're supposed to be, like, kind of challenging? So mm. you know, as much as we, we love white gays named Kevin. You know? Yeah, break it up a little bit, Kevin. <laughs> Go me to John. Go me to Tom. You know, just get out there. Jabuki Young White, you tweeted, statistically, at least one of the 12 disciples should have been queer, but none of them were. Because it was Jesus. Preach. Mm. Preach. Water into rose, honey. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I'm just going to say, say what stop. came in loose. <laughs> I got you. You wanted to laugh today. Mm. I'm also thinking about the tweets we saw and that we were like, it's too much. Mm. Too much for the timeline. Mm. Okay. All right. Tweet of the day. You ready? (laughs) What are you thinking about? What's Jesus turned the water into? Miss Vanjie, Miss Vanjie, Miss Vanjie. Okay. Tweet of the day. Ready? Let's do it. (laughs) It comes from Hispanic pixie dream girl. The Loch Ness Monster is queer. Lives alone on a lake, mm. shows up uninvited, only shows up if it'll cause headlines, mm. thinks it's special, mm. refuses to tell us its true nature. Ooh. I agree. That you make a good case. I feel like I feel like we can you officially say, case, well, let us know. Let's take it to the timeline. Use the hashtag aim to DM, is the Loch Ness Monster queer? I think or that, how queer oh, there is it is. the Loch Ness there Monster? There it is, because I feel like that's, yeah. I'm sold. Yeah, I'm only going to show up if it's going to cause waves. Congratulations, Scotland. All right, listen, up next, poet Terrence Hayes talks about his new book, which is absolutely incredible, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. He's sitting down with Saeed. You don't want to miss this conversation. I am here with friend, poet, Professor Terrence Hayes, winner of the 2010 National Book Award and 2014 MacArthur Fellow, genius. Hi, Terrence. How are you doing? Good to see you. Doing good. Okay, so Seth Rogen was here wearing shorts yesterday. You were I debated. Sh- I debated. <laughs> were you, you know, nervous? I'm not super technological. I was like, maybe it's AM for the radio. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> you thought you were slick. They were like, no one's gonna see. Like, DM, AM, does that mean it's gonna not? Yeah, no I love it. See me. I love it. It's fine. Right. We're, we're a different kind of morning show. Okay, so your new poetry collection is American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. That's right. Congratulations on a great title. Thank Step you, one. Thank you. Thank um, you. I love it because it's, it's American Sonnets, and we're gonna talk about that. But as I was reading, I was struck you have a sonnet by about Maxine Waters. That's right. Uh, and I was wondering if you could read it for us. Happily, happily. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. Maxine Waters, being of fire, being of sword shaped like a silver tongue, cauldron, siren, black as tarnation, black as the consciousness of a black president's wife, black as his black tie tuxedo beside his black wife and room after room of whiteness. My grandmother's name had water in it too, Watermaker. I have wept listening to Aretha Franklin sing Precious Lord. I have placed my thumb on the tongue of a black woman with an unbreakable voice. I love your mouth, floodgate, storm door. You are black as the gap in Baldwin's teeth. You are black as a Baldwin speech. I love how your blackness leaves them in the dark. I love how even your soundbite leaves a mark. Even your soundbite leaves a mark. What a line. Right. What a line. And we've had Maxine Waters on the show. She's, she's an yeah, incredible yeah. American icon uh, totally, and Congress totally. woman. Uh, what about her and obviously her way with language uh, kind of brought her to mind as you were writing these sonnets? Well, I, you know, so I was writing these sonnets every mm -hmm. day okay. and trying to kind of cope with whatever America is. This is very much a post-2016 election right, poetry collection. Right, exactly. And so I remember one morning just waking up, I turned on CNN, mm -hmm. and I was just writing while the television was on, okay. and she came on. Okay. And so there she was. And so, I mean, you know, uh, I was trying not to revise the poems too much and muscle mm -hmm. through. So, But this is one of the ones where I, when I finished writing, I was like, oh, okay, that's a poem. Okay. So I want to say it came like in the duration of her giving her talk. Okay. So hence the soundbite is a very literal response right. to whatever she was saying. Big picture is that like, you know, there's just not that many people right now who are speaking with that kind of fire, mm. uh, certainly speaking to one kind of fire. If there's a, a kind of political fire coming at us from mm. the Trump administration, and if you look at the alternative to that, like who's going mm -hmm. at that with the same kind of intensity, she would be mm -hmm. really the only person, as best I can tell, who's like fearless. And, and it, feel, it seems significant because, you know, women, black women, right. Right. And, and gender is such a thread throughout the book. It right. seems significant that, you know, she was born in the 1930s. Right. So to have a black woman uh, in Congress in such a visible platform, you know, also be, you know, speaking as a mother, right. grandmother, great-grandmother, right. you know, that's and a powerful the, answer. And the book is playing back and forth with that. Yeah, where mm -hmm. does power come from? So there's a line... Uh, uh, Prince proved that a real man has a beautiful woman in him. Mm -hmm. That's one of the lines in the poem. And that is sort of what I'm playing with often. Like, well, what is power? Certainly, mm -hmm. what would be the alternative to a kind of super hyper-masculine, super Trump-like power? Mm -hmm. So she certainly would be one of those people. When you're, so is Baldwin, too. There's right. a lot of people to pull down, Prince, mm -hmm. as well, and thinking about, like, Jimmy. there are other ways yeah. to kind of manifest one's power that has vulnerability uh -huh. in it, has... Uh, impulse and instinct in it and, you know, so a lot of compassion, Absolutely. empathy. So Absolutely. she would be one of those people. Something that's always struck me about your work, and I should say, you guys, I've been reading and, and chasing Terrence 
around uh, since I was a college student. I remember seeing you read in Atlanta at AWP in like 2007. Wow, yeah. Uh, reading Wind in a Box. Right. Uh, and you have always engaged gender and, and you know, queerness. Sure. You know, like either the Pegasus poem and this you have um, a line where you basically say like, listen, and let me say, you're addressing Trump, right. Trumpet, right. right? And you say, I can't speak for you, right. um, but as a man who has never made love to another man, mm -hmm. you know, basically you're saying, I know deep down in, in our law, in the folds sure. of our longing, right. you're ashamed of it. Yeah, well, a true lover, you know, if you think about it again, like loving, what does it mean to love all of humanity? Mm. So again, that I mean, Prince becomes a kind of a, a model for that. And a lot of that poem is about inversions. Right. So, so like, what's your relationship to your mama? Mm -hmm. What's my relationship to my mama? Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of stuff in there uh, that is often planned with these weird, like it's all queer, how about that? Like mm -hmm. these weird kind of divisions, certainly around desire and sexuality, but also around power. Right. Too. Right. So I'm off. I mean, it's true. I'm thinking about that all the time. You would think anybody would. Anybody mm -hmm. that like had a mother and a father would have to reconcile fairly rarely, uh, fairly regularly, uh, how those people are in you. Right. You know? So it would be the same thing for a woman. How much of her father is? How much of a man is in her? For a man, how much of a mother mm -hmm. is in him? So that just is like you know that's interesting every day to me. Incredible. I mean, you you mentioned earlier you were, and this is this is bold. You're writing every day. Right. Just writing every day. Um, because I noticed I was talking with Denez Smith. I'm in a group text with Denez Smith, sure, Angel sure. Nafis, and Morgan Parker. And Denez said, um, "There's a freestyle. There's a freestyle flow kind of quality to these poems that sure. felt different. So is that informed by like the speed at which you were Certainly. writing? Certainly. I mean, I typically am a rigorous and obsessive reviser. Yeah, you love form, you love boxes. I do, and I like, I generally say, I like to be working on a poem. I don't mm -hmm. like for my poems to be fixed. Okay. I like to have a poem, to work on it for a year. That's something to do, you know. Okay. Maybe that's how novelists are. So I think about poems that way. But uh, for this one, because I've sort of had my career that way, I mm -hmm. thought I should try something different. And because every day with the, the change of the world post-2016 mm -hmm. November, uh, it was overwhelming, and so I felt like this was the best way to do it. And I was writing them and just sending them out, not because I, even though it feels like a good plan now, I was trying to like get the market ready. I was just not wanting to revise them. So the best thing I could do is write it, and then like maybe at the end of the week or in two weeks, send out a batch of them. Okay. So they started kind of trickling out and all these. So you could like got them away from you. Okay. Right. And the problem was when the book came the, to resist. So I feel like even that Maxine Waters poem, I think mm -hmm. I poked at something mm -hmm. in the end. Maybe I changed it back. Mm -hmm. So that free form, like you think that that's uh, as it should be, mm -hmm. but I still do believe in revision. Mm -hmm. And so I felt myself really torn when the time came to kind of put them in a collection to not want to mm -hmm. revise and poke at the things that I was just sort of pushing out mm -hmm. from a kind of, yeah from a real space, a kind of impulsive. Uh, intuitive space is how I was writing them every day. Um, you're a writer who has received such acclaim, such acclaim. Um, you know, you're also, you're very tall. You're a black <laughs> man who played basketball in college. You know, maybe sure. some people when they think of Poe, it's like, oh, I didn't, you know, whatever. Sure. Uh, and so I wanted to ask just about your broader experiences, you know, as a black man sure. moving through what, I, you know, like Zora Neale Hurston, like the bright white spaces, the sure. white backgrounds. Sure. Um, what has that been like for you over the course of your career? I mean, maybe that's in that poem too, where I sort of shift to this idea of like, you know, the president and the president's wife navigating these spaces. So, you know, we all do. I don't, uh, I mean, I could broaden that to like America and American mm -hmm. Sonnet. I generally just think uh, that's what America is. It's mm -hmm. just this really rain, rangy, different, diverse sort of space. Mm -hmm. So my impulse is just to get out of the house. Like mm -hmm. what I really want to do is just stay home and write every day. Okay. And that's not necessarily <laughs> uh -huh. self, uh, healthy. Mm -hmm. So I do try to get out and I look for those spaces mm -hmm. is what I would say. I look, it doesn't have to be a space where everybody looks like me because mm -hmm. I find that that's, probably not really what America is anyway. Mm -hmm. So I feel pretty comfortable moving through uh, different 
relationships, different circles, different social circles. Absolutely. And I think maybe that's always been true. You've always had an ease. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do like people. Um, I like a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know if you leave it to me, I only talk about poetry. So I do, <laughs> I hunt out um, alternative kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and, and people that have surprised me. So that's, you know, again, that's kind of a, 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 daily, a daily practice of looking for just a different conversation. I love it. I love it. So. And, and out of that conversation, this book is here. Yeah. I'm so happy as with people. Guys, this is, it is, uh, the New York Times review is, is absolutely gorgeous. Appreciate and I think it. it's like dark and dazzling and challenging. So right. congratulations right. to that. Again, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin is available now. Get it, get two copies so you can read it with a friend. Up next, Isaac's gonna be talking about the Dario reboot. Cause that's just, we got that range. You gotta yeah, be able to do that. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, friend, congratulations. Eric Adams tweeted, Daria is a perfectly preserved time capsule. Every aspect of its point of view and sense of humor specific to the late 90s. Also, please don't drag her into our hellish present. She deserves better than that. Joining me to talk about the version of Daria that will be pulled into our hellish present is BuzzFeed Entertainment editor David Mack. David, good morning. Good morning. I am always glad to be your hellish present. Oh, you, that's how I think of you. You're a presence that I receive and you're hellish. Good. I really appreciate you. you coming yes. on the show. You're welcome. Uh, so listen, there are a lot of people that feel pretty negatively about reboots. One could argue Daria herself might be one of those mm -hmm. people. Uh, but what are you excited about for this Daria reboot? I mean, I get it. Reboots are controversial. You just saw yesterday with Roseanne, the kind of what happens with when they try to reboot something that, you know, for someone from the past, and it mm. may not necessarily go so well. Mm -mm. Uh, but I don't know, I feel like Daria's uh, personality kind of matches my attitude towards the new cycle of late, <laughs> where I'm just kind of like letting things wash over me. Just the this general, like, constant mo monotony of, like, I am ready. My body is ready for the news today. Uh, just kind of this stony face. Yes. Cynical. Yes. Like, yes. oh, just another day in this crappy life. If you're not cynical right now in 2018, I want some of whatever you're on. Because, <laughs> like, uh, and Daria, I just think, is going to match that. She's going to, like, expose this stuff. Uh, and I think I'm ready for it. The tenor is correct. All right, so what about this reboot is going to be mm -hmm. different, though, than the smash hit in the 90s? Well, it's not just called Daria. It's called Daria and Jody, And they're bringing back uh, Jody's character okay. from the original series as well. I don't know what's happened to Jane, Daria's best friend from the show. But apparently, Daria and Jody are friends now. <laughs> Hopefully, they explain that in the show. Maybe Jane's uh, just, just, just yeah. Like a secondary exactly, character. Right? Well, so yeah, Jodie was like one of the few characters of color in this show, mm -hmm. you remember? And uh, she, you know, she was uh, quite, she had a lot of depth for a secondary character as well. So hopefully now in this new version, we see that fleshed out uh, and we see them take on the issues of 2018. That's what MTV has said, that it's going to be a show of the present. Uh, whether that means they're like, I don't know, 30, 40 now, that'll be interesting to see. But I don't think that's what MTV meant. I don't okay. think that's what they meant when they're in the Dark present. As a mom, I don't know. I'd see that. I could see. I could actually see that work a little bit as well. Uh, uh, the show is going to be written about uh, by Grace Edwards. Mm -hmm. What do we know about her? She's worked on a couple of big shows. So she's worked on Kimmy Schmidt mm -hmm. uh, off of Netflix. She's worked on Inside Amy Schumer. She's also worked on Broad City mm -hmm. as well. So. All three shows that I like, and I feel like if she can bring bits of all those three to this Daria uh, reboot, mm -hmm. then I'm 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 intrigued. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued. I will say, you know, Daria and Kimmy Schmidt are pretty different characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see how well she does. Absolutely. She's also a writer of color. That's right. So she's going to be tackling Jodie's character, and yes. hopefully, what is more of a fleshed-out version yes. of yes. a character that was very beloved in the yes. in the '90s show. Um, let me ask this: Why do you think '90s nostalgia is so big right now? 
I, well, the president is Donald Trump. He's <laughs> from the 90s. I don't know. What do you want from me? Uh, this, I mean, like, I, I guess, like, there's a lot that's come back from the 90s that people <laughs> thought they had left behind. And maybe we're trying to look through the 90s and find things that weren't so bad. Uh -huh. Trying to find things that are like, oh, you know what? That was okay. I liked that. So it's like nostalgia, right? And also, okay, the people who were in the 90s growing up, like mm -hmm. you and I, we run the world now. Well, no, we don't. But like, we we at least have a hunger for things that like want to make us feel like we were kids. That's what mm. nostalgia is all about, right? Mm. You want to return to a time when everything was a little bit more comforting. Mm. And I just feel like even a show like Daria, which was cynical and you know sarcastic, is still something that reminds people of like a. A simpler time. That cynicism yeah. might be like a comfort uh, comfort blanket. That's really funny that you bring that up, because I do remember being a kid, and we were nostalgic for like the 60s yeah. then. That was like a big thing back during the 90s. Well, so, for my parents at least. And yeah. now here we are yeah. doing, doing, doing the, the same thing. thing. All right, but it's not just Daria. What else is MTV rebooting? That's right, so they're bringing uh, back a few things. Uh, they've launched this company called MTV Studios with the goal of, I mean, MTV has 35 years of intellectual property, right, that mm -hmm. they've got in their back catalog. And they're looking at all this stuff and thinking, well, we should make some money off this. So uh, they're going to make these shows and not necessarily air them on MTV, but uh, try to sell them to other platforms, other networks, maybe things like Netflix as well. Uh, so they're looking at things like The Real World, they're mm. looking at things like Made, which mm. I was a big fan of. I read that show where they sort of took teenagers who had a goal of doing something pretty far-fetched and mm -hmm. got them a coach and like tried to like get them to do this within an hour-long show. Uh, so yeah, we're seeing a few things that are going to be coming back. That are going to be coming back. And it's like this, this intellectual property right that they are going to be able to profit on. Yeah. Uh, real quick before I let you go, is there an MTV show that wasn't mentioned that you would like to see be remade? Well, so MTV's also behind, they've involved films like uh, Napoleon Dynamite mm -hmm. and Election as well, which is one of my favorite films, the Alexander Payne film with Reese Witherspoon. And I mean, because they own that IP, they could potentially turn that into a show. So maybe we see a, an election show where Reese Witherspoon's character is all grown up. I don't know, I'd be watching. Where Reese Witherspoon's character plays Matthew Broderick's character. MTV, that's a good idea. We're just giving it to you for free. Should I like that. Cut us a check. That's you should awesome. definitely yeah. cut it. All right, we're not giving it to you for free. Cut us a check. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Daria. Uh, and we want to hear from you, Twitter. Which MTV shows do you want to see come back? Tell us using the hashtag AM to DM. And up next, Saeed's going to answer some of your questions for Dear Ferocity. For me, hit my ride, man. I just want to hit my ride to come back. Uh, we've made it through the week, so it's time for a very special Dear Ferocity uh, advice segment. This time it's about summer flings. Listen, I'm not saying a one-night stand is a great way to let off steam, but uh, I've done it. Anyway, uh, you've DM'd me some questions on different hookup dynamics and quandaries, um, and I'm just going to give you some advice because I am wise. I'm also a slut. All right, question number one. I have a crush on a coworker with summer approaching. Should I shoot my shot for a summer boo? Is it too risky? Bitch, don't do it! No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is not a potential summer boo. That is a coworker. There are so many reasons why hooking up with a coworker is, is, is not a good idea, and I think you are aware of them. If it doesn't work out, you're both in a difficult situation. When you are at work, you should not be, you know, 
thinking about like, hey, do I want to hook up with this person sitting across the meeting from me? Like, it's just, it's just not a good look. It's not a good vibe. Um, and I don't know where you live, but there are so many people outside of the company where you work who deserve all you have to bring and just like, just don't do it, honey. I, I hate to start this off with like, let's talk about sex, don't have it, um, but don't do it, you don't want it. All right, question number two. Uh, my roommate is newly single and has made it her summer mission to have as many hookups as possible, more power to her, but I do not like having a bunch of randos drinking my coffee the next morning. Do I have to tell her to scale it back while supporting her? Yeah, step one, don't, they shouldn't be drinking your coffee. Um, yeah, shout out to her. I'm, I'm happy for her living her life. I would say this, listen, y'all are living together. That is a shared space. So, you know, maybe, I, you know, maybe one dude, you know, a week, maybe keep it to a, like a Friday, Saturday kind of situation and the rest of her hookups, she can stay at their place, you know, to kind of break it up. But I think you should feel comfortable saying, yo, girl, I am happy for you, you do it, but also can we think about the space we're all sharing? Because listen, you might want, you know, have a gentleman caller over that you want to, you know, have breakfast with the next morning. So I think it's fair to have like a calm, chill, reasonable conversation um, and you both should be happy, all right? Uh, what should I do if I want to pursue something with a guy who may be interested but knows he's hot? You know the type, people literally fall over themselves for him because he's hot and sweet, but I don't want to be a damn idiot I want to hang out with him, but I want to be smart. Um, how do you think I should go about this? Friend, lean closer to the screen. This is the perfect summer fling scenario. This is great. He's hot, you know, he's sweet. You are aware that it's probably not the best setup for a long-term relationship. That's exactly what you want, honey. By the time you get to August or September, you'd be like, that was cute, but I'm moving on. I, I think you are the, the gateway to a wonderful summer, friend. Like, it, the solstice was yesterday, girl, and the tension is high. I say do it because it helps. Like a, a fling is best when both people are aware of what they expect out of each other and like have fun. You know, if he's hot and you know, enjoy that. You deserve, dear. Okay, the nukes are coming. All right, one more. Um, I started seeing someone really cool, but I'm recently out of a long-term relationship and we don't want anything serious this summer. Oh, okay, like the reverse of the previous question. Um, she's already asked, what are we, once, and I changed the subject. I'm scared she will ask again and want something more. How do I let her down gently without ruining what we already have? Ah, man, this sucks, but it happens. I would say, um, we are adults here, we don't get to have both. Right, you don't get to continue the dynamic and as it is without rec without being honest about how you feel. You know, so if you are aware um, that she wants something, you know, more long lasting, and that just is not in the cards for you, I think you need to say that, and I think you need to own the fact that yeah, it may not that might be the end of the road for you, but I think that's better than kind of leading her on. You don't want to be that kind of person. You know, we no fuck boys in 2018. We all deserve far better friend. Okay, so just be honest and and move on. And I guess I have one more. We have time for one more? Okay. Um, how do I get a hotation going like Issa? <laughs> A hotation. First of all, recognize that it's a great deal of work. Uh, second, know that it didn't really work out for Issa, so I don't know if a hotation is ideal, but this is what I would suggest. You know, I always talk about the group text, you know, go to them for like feedback and everything because you're gonna have to master scheduling. You have to master um, having different outfits, your apartment, like sleeping arrangements. It's kind of complicated. So if you wanna have a hotation, you know, you need to recognize that like, you know, having three or four people in your life all of a sudden is three or four more people to deal with. Um, and so, you know, I'd say start 
Start with one or two, you know? You know, don't, you don't have to spread it too far around. It's just overwhelming. I'm just speaking on the practical matter of all of this. And of course, use protection, do prep, you know, do all those adult things you need to be doing when you're living your life. I'm just assuming we're all reasonable here when we're talking about our summer flings. Anyway, thank you for your questions. Uh, tweet me more using the hashtag Dear Ferocity, or you can DM me and we'll just keep the kiki going. Um, and I'll answer more of your questions next week. When we come back, Isaac and I are going to read your tweets. What a morning. <laughs> <laughs> want to start off with this tweet from Joe Lee. They said, actual capture of old Bessie at Loch Ness. Hashtag happy pride. <laughs> hashtag aim to DM. I like it. Joe Lee, that Ooh, is the most adorable thing I've seen all day. That was oh, cute. Oh, that was, it's already gone. <laughs> it's cute. it's it already cute. gone. Shout out to you, Joe Lee. But it was very cute. I like it. I enjoyed your advice that you Listen, had for everybody during Dear Ferocity. I, I've been on the highways and byways. I feel like with the work <laughs> thing, you're right. Ooh, that's the only, th the work thing was honestly the only thing where I was like, ooh, pump the brakes. You're right. So don't do it. You're absolutely oh, right. But sometimes the heart wants what the heart wants. No, don't do it. You turn that heart off in a workplace. I definitely do agree, hotations. That gets exhausting. It's, 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 I mean, literally, it, like, Issa, like, it's great for, like, an uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever an episode in your life needs. <laughs> All right, Mrs. Smith, you tweeted this. Loch Ness Monster is so queer, it macramed itself some jean shorts. <laughs> mm. Now I want a little image of that yeah, now, too. gayer than macrame. Just, like, like a word, you know? Shout I love the you. idea of people getting Loch Ness Monster <laughs> tattoos. Just like in drag, oh, in the macrame shorts, it'd be good. <laughs> this life. Uh, well, this morning we had a lot going on, of course, and a lot is going on, just not just on Twitter, but in America. Uh, Rachel Hill Girlfield, you had to say this about the family separation crisis. Checking in our luggage at airlines has a better system than the government separating children, and luggage is still lost a lot. That is real. I <laughs> just, yeah, I think so much this week about, like, beyond... Uh, the intention and, and, the, and the politics, the incompetence and bureaucracy, right? Like just the fact that there was clearly like not enough thought mm -hmm. about like what if we do have to change? Like I feel like any, you know, any uh, administration putting forward like a major policy would also have to consider contingencies. And the mm -hmm. fact that it did not says so much about how- Or that those contingencies people. are breaking down Congressman, mm -hmm. uh, the Congresswoman, what she said about a woman had a sheet of paper that was supposed to have her children's names on it. Mm -hmm. And she was like, these are not my children. Yeah. I mean, one, we have people out there without receipts, without yep. paperwork, and then the people that do have paperwork, it's getting mixed up, it's really tough. There's a lot going on, friends. Here's a reaction to Terrence Hayes' interview. Did he just say, inside every man with real power is a beautiful woman? Woo! Terrence Hayes, we stand a legend. Yeah. That oh, was God, another great work, conversation. It's wonderful, and he's a very prolific writer. There, if, 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 if that was your introduction to Terrence Hayes' work, congratulations, you have so many great books to read, and I'm happy, like, we could just have a Twitter book club about it. Also, I just got a slack from Shawnee Hilton, our boss, mm. uh, who said, bitch, don't do it, is going to be the name of my campaign against office romances, mm. so. There you go. I'm, I'm not saying you're not in the right. I agree with you. Boss, boss, let me talk to you direct. I, I agree. I have, I'm right. just saying. I think I have a meeting with Shawnee later today, so we will further on this point. Anyway, <laughs> on a final note, we got more from Jolie. You were just on fire today, Jolie. Um, if it's not a circle of white gays named Kevin, they're all named Jason. 
Yeah, that, that, that checks oh, out. Yeah, that, that checks, checks out. out. That checks out. Absolutely, that's absolutely. I mean, that, that's something I'm so grateful for living in the city of New York and having the life that I have, is that I just know so many wonderful people from different backgrounds and stuff, and that I now, if I am invited to a party or a get-together, and they're like, my rule is if there are 10 people here, and I am the only person of color, I am not coming into this space again. There's no reason that friends in New York City mm -hmm. should be having those kinds of arrangements. And that's not just black and white, that's anything. Mm -hmm. The only gay person, the only whatever. So, all right, Jolie. Well, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Terrence Hayes, Adolfo Flores, Nabia Syed, Tarini Party, and David Mack. Thank you all. I like that you left us with a little Pride Week wisdom there. You're Everybody all now, enjoy Charlie. your weekend. We'll be back on Monday. I'm gonna be here with Sylvia Obell. We're gonna give this man a three-day weekend. Because I'm gay and I have rights. Enjoy yourselves. <laughs> See you on Monday. Facts are facts, America. Mm.